Hello, Lime Ninjas. This is Lime Ninja Radio, where we help you navigate confidently through your own personal Lime journey. Everybody's journey is different, and a cookie-cutter approach just doesn't work for Lyme disease. You need Lyme Ninja skills. I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 108 with Lyme expert Kevin Heer. Also with us in the studio all the way from the West Coast is our certified show producer in the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode you will learn the hero's journey, why your doctor should never be the final authority in your health, and taking ownership of your Lyme journey. Yes, the conversation with Kevin was just a wonderful walk through his experience with Lyme disease and also his experience as a filmmaker. And I think he's going to have some very interesting things for you to think about and take into your own Lyme journey and maybe help you get your brain and your spirit organized around the journey ahead. You know, it's not just a simple thing. He talks about the hero's journey, and really, you're the hero of this story. So it can go lots of different ways, but the hero's journey is never a straight line. And before we get into today's interview, I want to make sure everybody has downloaded our Brain Fog Breathing Cheat Sheet. If you haven't yet gotten to it, just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com front slash Brain Fog and sign up to get it. Again, that's LimeNinjaRadio.com front slash Brain Fog. Alrighty, Aurora, tell us a little bit more about today's guest, Kevin Peer. Kevin Peer was a photographer and later a film director for National Geographic. In the early 90s, Kevin had gone on a camping trip to Arkansas where he describes, quote, the ticks fell from the dense canopy of trees like rain. Fast forward to 2006, his health had deteriorated to such an extent he had turned to the internet. Dr. Google led him to Lyme disease, and he was finally diagnosed with advanced neurological Lyme. Throughout the experience of treating Lyme disease, he found comfort and a breakthrough in the archetype of the hero's journey. It helped him regain a sense of power in his healing, where medical providers were partners rather than an ultimate authority. Today, he has an integrative counseling and hypnotherapy practice in California. You can find Kevin's full story on his website, innerdalliance.net. Thanks, Aurora. And here's our interview with Lyme expert, Kevin Peer. Do you have an experience specific with Lyme disease, or is this something more chronic disease in general for you? Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, I went through the... <laughs> I went through kind of the archetypal journey of chronic Lyme disease, of it being undiagnosed, misdiagnosed for an unknown number of years, you know, up up to 15, 20 years. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and gradually got worse. You know, I think that my immune system was able to to fight it off so that it became kind of a you know a a, a a casserole of different symptoms uh that gradually were getting worse and um i started to notice a shift in 2003 but uh because it wasn't on the radar of any of the doctors that i was seeing it you know was diagnosed typically this typical story of, of it being diagnosed as other things and then it was in 2006 
that it went into my nervous system, and that's when it really got my attention. And there again, the the uh, my primary physician at the time, who was a very dear person, but she just didn't know anything about Lyme disease, and um, so she was, you know, ordering tests for food sensitivities and things like that. Um, which it turns out I did have food sensitivities, but when it went into my nervous system. It started to change both my uh, cognitive abilities uh, and my ability to put sentences together, um, and it started to give me a temper, which was very uh, untypical. And because uh, I, you know, been a meditator and pretty try to be a pretty calm person and and try to be mindful of that gap between um, perception and reaction and uh having the the choice you know making a choice on how i want to respond behaviorally to something and that gap was just gone you know it would just be instant response good old lime rage right right good old lime rage which i'd never heard of before and uh so i just started plugging my symptoms into google dr google like okay yeah dr google the so I was on my own, you know, yeah. at that point. It's like, okay, my doctors don't know what's going on. I've got to find out what's going on because I'm feeling inhabited by a foreign being, you know. And so Lyme disease kept coming up. And lo and behold, you know, I ordered a test through my doctor, and I came up with long-term exposure to Lyme. And that was the beginning of of the journey, really, and that continued for, you know, the healing process continued for, um, you know, six, eight, ten years after that, because there again, I was not dealing with any doctor who knew all of the pieces of the puzzle. What part of the country were you in? I was in uh, Northern California, which it turns out, about four hours north of San Francisco, which it turns out is one of the epidemic areas of the country. But ironically enough, the doctors and other healthcare practitioners in the area just weren't, the word hadn't gotten through to them. And so uh, it turned out that, I mean, the, the, the kind of larger picture my health, you know, long story short, was I eventually found out that I had three other tick-borne diseases in addition to Lyme disease. Um, I had massive hormonal dysfunction, um, some heavy metal toxicity, you know, just the, I had central sleep apnea, you know, and it was this gradual process. The more that I was relying on, on external authorities to investigate this for me, uh, the more things fell through the cracks. And so more and more I was, I was relying on my own resources and, and the, the good research resources of my wife. And then also a few friends who were in the area who were, who were very uh, medically adept in terms of their, their interest in things relating to physiology. And because then they found out they had Lyme disease, they started getting really interested in tick-borne diseases. So we kind of pooled our knowledge resources. And, it, and then we would pre, you know, I would present that information to whatever doctor I was dealing with. And if the doctor was open to receiving input from 
a lowly patient, <laughs> then then we continued the relationship, you know, because I wasn't a lowly patient. I was seen as a as a collaborator in this health journey. And for those doctors who were really attached to that old paradigm of no, 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 you don't present information to to me. I tell you what's going on. Right. Well, those doctors, I, you know, I, I diplomatically said, um, I diplomatically let them know they're a dinosaur and that I was not going to be a patient of theirs any longer. You know, it's uh, interesting how difficult it is, even when you're mad at a doctor, and I'm speaking globally, to to quote unquote fire them. You know, that's definitely not part of our everyday conversations we still have this difference even if we don't like what they're doing um so to be able to kind of hold that paradigm that new paradigm that yes i'm looking for a partner and most people who have chronic lyme have researched the heck out of it and know significantly more than than the local doc i mean significantly more significantly more the doctor's an idiot if they don't listen and my apologies to all you doctors out there who are listening. Well, it really uh, there, there's a there's a whole uh, kind of conspiracy of 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 uh, forces that operate that that put that put doctors at this apex, which also makes it a very lonely profession. You know, potentially a very lonely profession. Um, the same thing with people who are who are therapists or psychiatrists. You know, any profession where there's a tremendous amount of projection of authority on the part of the patient or the part of the client, and it can appeal to the ego to be sort of at that apex. And it's like, wow, everybody, you know, who walks into my office is looking to me for guidance, is looking up to me for guidance, and. You know, the, the ego really loves that, you know, loves, loves being looked up to that way and that projection of, of power and authority. But that also means that, that, uh, that if one is in that position, you're not learning. You're not, you're not learning from your patients. And there's a real price to be paid when there is that lack of humility. And so I, in a way, I, I sympathize. I sympathize for these doctors who were, who were caught in that role because they're playing a role. Uh, they're caught in a role. They're being assigned a role and they're caught in the role as much as, uh, as much as a patient who is kind of feeling the victim is caught in a role as well. And so in my own journey, kind of what the, the turning point was for me was when I started to, because I had been a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker for many years. I used to make films for National Geographic and others. And so I was a storyteller. And at a certain point, about 2008, I started saying, wait a minute, this is my story. This is an unfolding story here. I started to to do this mind shift to where I was, in a sense, pretending as though I was doing a film on my own life. I wasn't, but I was as if I was doing a film on my own life. I was applying the same view of story as if I was making a biographical film on somebody else, which I had done so many times in the past. I was, right. you know, very adept at it. It was very automatic, those, uh, looking at, at a person's life in terms of story. And when I started to do that for myself, it made all the difference in the world. Yeah, there's something very, very powerful about shifting to the third person 
when dealing with something like this. Just that little bit of gap to begin to create between this is my reality as opposed to this is a reality and maybe we can shift this. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, you know, the whole, our identity and, uh, there, there's an identity that is wrapped up with, say, with feeling like a victim, which is very, very easy to do, especially if one has gone through this typical history of, of many years or even decades of, of increasingly failing health, of being misunderstood by others, of being, um, you know, not dealt with respectfully by doctors, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's really easy to, and then just the physiological effects of Lyme disease itself, Lyme disease, Bartonella, you know, these other tick-borne diseases that can have such strong psychological effects. Yeah. They're messing with your nervous system. Yeah. You know, there's, there's all these neurotoxins that are in, that are swimming around in your brain that are causing inflammation that are altering your perceptions and your behavior. Yes. So, um, if one is already feeling like a victim, then there is a way that, that one's physiology, uh, that one's subconscious mind then contributes towards the physiology just following suit. It's like, oh, okay, well, this is what the body of a victim feels like. This is how the body of a victim operates. And one of the things that was remarkable for me to discover was that as soon as I made this shift and I, and I realized that I was on a journey, that there was this story that was unfolding in my life, um, the physiological experience started to shift as well. Yeah, so let's talk about, I mean, because the typical hero in the journey is the physician. And whether it's an LLMD or whether it's a regular doc, we go to, you know, we go to the mountaintop. We go to see Horowitz. We go to see Klinghardt. We travel to Germany to see somebody or the, or, or in some cases it's the technology. You know, we're going to get this certain technology that's the hero. Mm-hmm. And, but you're talking about really grabbing hold of that. And really that's, we hear about there's a business out there, Lime Warriors, and we hear that phrase out there. And that's one reason I named my podcast Lime Ninja was the idea that you kind of need some ninja skills to navigate this thing. And you need to be the one kind of being training yourself and, and uh, gaining this. So when, when did your, I mean, you talk about, you've talked about it now, but let's talk explicitly about your shifting where you became the hero in in your own story. Yeah, well, that was about that time of, uh, as I said, about 2008. And that was after um, finding, you know, and working with some Lyme literate doctors uh, who um, were unfortunately very full of themselves, very, very arrogant. And they they were used to this kind of uh, extreme version of the relationship I was talking about before of a, of a patient naturally or, or being trained to look up to a doctor, add to that people who have been through all of this, um, all of these, um, you know, health crises. And so there's the tendency to look to this doctor for the miracle. You know, talk about uh, extreme projection. So I've been through some experiences of being really, really disappointed and um, and that was the, the the blessing of that was just in going okay I'm I'm really on my own here, and 
And then, as I said, about 2008, I really started to look in terms of story. And I have, um, I'm always reading about psychology and mythology and that sort of thing. And so I just realized, wait a minute, this is, this is the classic hero's journey. This is the mythic hero's journey that's being enacted in my life. Um, and uh, as I said, the, my, my physiology started to shift. It's like something started to get activated and aligned in me that was very different than the physiology of feeling and being a victim. And so I started looking at the whole experience in terms of that hero's journey. And if I was feeling moments of despair or those natural moments with Lyme, partly because of the nature of the experience, partly, be- again, because of how the, <clears throat> the organism affects one's um, nervous system, whether those feelings like it's, it's always been this way, it's always going to be this way. You know, that kind of Lyme fog that, you're, that one can get in, or just feels like the experience is going to go on forever. Well, that's what the hero goes through. That's what the hero in the classic stories goes through. There's the moment of dark, moment or period of darkness and despair. And so it gave me, uh, by having this, uh, this kind of template, but this kind of time-honored, you know, archetypal template of the hero's journey, I could put everything, I could recontextualize the whole experience. And so if I was feeling despair, it's like, oh wow, this is, this is what the hero goes through in the great tale. You know, and, and, it, and it let me know that even if in the moment part of me felt like it was going to go on forever, another part of me could recognize that that was the part of the nature of the hero's journey and that even the word journey implied that there was going to be movement and evolution towards other states. So... I could look at if I was having a uh, if, if I was working with a doctor who was really arrogant. I could say, okay, wow, that's bringing up a lot for me. How can I transform this relationship, or at least my relationship with this, uh, with working with this individual? And I could look at that person as a potential ally. Um, and if they weren't acting like an ally, I could look at them as as one of the antagonists that that a uh, that a heroine encounters along the way and say, okay, well, this is all about how I'm going to relate to the situation, so I have to rise to it. This is an opportunity for, for empowering myself and not looking at the outer source for the power. So it's very, it, it was very useful, um, kind of beyond just doing a clever thing with the mind because <laughs> yeah because the, the hero's journey is so um it's the core of all the great you know uh, uh the the great stories and a lot of the creation myths where there are humans involved etc there's some version of the hero's journey and it's in our dna i mean it's it's so deep i've i've been with many cultures around the world and and I remember years ago um, being in the middle of the Sahara Desert and um, was around a, a campfire with this group of Tuareg, and uh, one of them was this very revered Tuareg elder who had actually fought against the French when the French were still the 
the he, he was one of the Tuaregs who helped to drive the French out of Niger. Um, and so he's quite an old man, and we're sitting around the campfire, and he's telling stories to the to the boys and to the young men, and it's this classic hero story. And so we're dealing with something that is that's kind of universal, that as I said is kind of built into our DNA. And so when when we're enacting the hero's journey in our own life. It goes deeper than just a mind trick. Gets one's physiology does start to change because you're enacting the archetypal world in your own life. It's like you're you're tapping into something that is transpersonal, that is larger than the self. You know, it sounds hard on the other side. It almost reminds me of I. I I talk to people uh, about Lyme disease all the time, and I, I try to uh, bring up the image and the story of Alice in Wonderland and through the looking glass. It's like once you've gone down the Lyme disease looking glass, the world is not the same world. It's a it's a different world, and it's tough to rem- remember what it was like on the other side of the mirror. And this hero's journey is is funny because healing. I'm an acupuncturist by training, mm-hmm. and the funny thing about healing is it can be progressive. So sort of like building a muscle, and maybe that's maybe that's not healing. Maybe that's just recovery and and strength. But healing happens in an instant, which is and I've seen that happen on the acupuncture table, mm. and it blows mm. it blows your mind. It's like the person gets rearranged. And it's outside of time. It doesn't take any time. So I've mm-hmm. had people with chronic pain, and it's it's disappeared instantly. And that's not that the case. Is not I'm not trying to say that every time somebody comes to my office, they walk away instantly with no pain. But it happens often enough that it makes you scratch your head and say, "What's really going on here?" And I think in the Western medical model, we dismiss that as as a placebo effect. Oh, that is just all in the mind. But there's something that I think you're talking about here that that's deeper than that. And my my own experience with Lyme is is so mild compared to your story and so many others, but it did have that instant too where I had gotten bit and didn't know it and had no rash in the first couple of days but got the flu. So mm-hmm. I was feeling that's the worst I had felt since since food poisoning. I was just really feeling sorry for myself. I remember dragging myself to the bathroom uh, Sunday morning wondering, you know, is this thing ever going to clear up? And I look in the mirror and on my shoulder, my arm, was the bullseye rash. And oh, I instant, yeah. I'm telling you, instantly felt better. Uh-huh. Because now I had my own little hero's journey. I knew exactly what I was going to do. Well, and I, I was totally ignorant about Lyme disease. If I had known more then, I would have been terrified out of my mind. But instead, it's, oh, that's easy. Go down to the ER, you know. Get some antibiotics and life will be good. And luckily, it was early enough and followed up with some herbal medicine and some acupuncture that it was, you know, 98% enough. Mm-hmm. Know? And, yeah. But, but yeah. It, it was an instantaneous shift. And I tell you, ask my wife, I was, I'm not a good sick person. I whine and complain and leave me alone in the, you know, the dark in the covers and I'll be at, back out when. You know, when I'm ready. But this was an instantaneous shift. So it can, 
your spirit, you know, the energy can shift. Now, that doesn't mean you re- you've recovered, but that moment is the moment we heal, and the rest is just kind of cleaning up the pieces, and whether that's killing off the disease or, you know, or recovering our strength, and that can take years. Mm-hmm. But but the mm-hmm. healing, you know, the shift in that that you're talking about is a powerful moment, and we do hear it when we're interviewing people. People talk about that moment um, when when everything shifts for them. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's why the the when I work with people. Um, and how, so, context, how do you work with people? Do you consult with them? I do. Yeah, I consult with them, and. Um, and I work with people over over a period of time, um, and what I found is that that what I found is that that uh, people who are a lot of people who are suffering from the chronic version of, of Lyme disease who have had illness as part of their life for a number of years. There's often a lot of layers that are involved. Um, there's the physical layer of all of the different um, pieces that need to be attended to for the healing process, you know, and, and when I was talking about my own journey earlier and mentioned, wow, finding out that I had three tick-borne diseases and that my hormones are all messed up and, you know, the list kind of goes on and on. Um, that's one thing that I do is to help to make sure that people are looking at all those pieces and then presenting that to whatever or whoever, um, Healthcare practitioners that they're working with, so I make sure that they're that they get a hormone panel done and that they're paying attention to their gut health, especially if they've been in antibiotics, and that they're looking into heavy metal toxicity and histamine intolerance. And you know, there's there's this long list of things. And if you miss one thing, it can hold back the whole process. You know, if if you miss the fact that you're histamine intolerant, um, it can the symptoms can look like like Lyme disease or one of the co-infections, and it can actually really knock back your your immune system and make your life really miserable. Um, you can find you can be allergic or, or excuse me, uh, intolerant of a single food that one has habitually in their diet and not know that the intolerance is there and feel miserable all the time. I just one piece missing. So there's kind of the looking at the physiological part of it. Um, and then the other part is recontextualizing the experience. So just a fancy word for saying, let's look at this in a different way. Let's look at this as, as this journey of healing. And my, my basic approach is, okay, well, it's going to take an unknown amount of time to heal. However, you know, and that's very individual for each person, how they define healing and what, what their ideal state of health is. Um, you might as well make use of it. Might as well make use of it as a transformative journey. So, you know, one can look at the at suffering as being a form of energy. Um, and you can use suffering, you can use the... the, uh, the um, there's a power to it. There's an energy to it, uh, and and you can use it for the process of growth. And all of us, I, I would say, if we looked at our lives, we could probably look back and remember a uh, a friend or a colleague or uh, a family member who went through some uh, powerful 
uh, seemingly catastrophic experience at the time. And, uh, you know, it could be loss of a job or a relationship or um, what's keeping in the physical realm of, of a heart attack or cancer or something like that. And probably all of us can remember at least one person who afterwards would say, my God, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Right. And why? It's because their back was against the wall. They they had to... It wasn't as if they had to, to rally all this determination because the energy is there for the determination. It's just not in the form of determination yet. I mean, one thing I want to point out is that the the notion of a hero's journey or, or something can sound like, where am I going to possibly find the energy for that? You know, it sounds like, oh, the hero's quest is all about trudging uphill, and I don't have the energy for it. And and the the great thing is because we're this part of the protocol, if you will, is working with the mind. It's like, no, the energy is already there. You just have to liberate it. The energy is tied up in the identity of being a victim. The energy is tied up in resistance to um, to the suffering. The energy is being tied up by um, by having a by saying i don't want this to be in my life right and kind of contracting around it do so you, when the it, hmm? do you ever have people create an avatar if they're struggling to make that shift that is one yeah that is uh that is one possibility um so that's so, avatar is just another fancy word for uh, a superhero you <laughs> right right well it's uh one of the things that i do is uh b- before i even work with somebody glad that you brought that up one of the good things that i do is that i um have a person answer you know a long questionnaire and that's one of the one of the questions that i ask is are there any um heroes or superheroes that you admire that you feel some kind of identity with um, or it could be, you know, a beloved grandmother or, you know, just some figure, either real or mythical in, in one's life that still carries this, this, uh, internal response. So when, when it, you know, you, you think about the person, it's like, oh, there's this little surge of energy or well, almost like a well-being. So the, there's the physical part, there's the recontextualizing the experience and saying, okay, you're on a journey, let's make use of this journey. And for whatever time it is, it is taking as a journey of transformation. And, um, and then there's working with, um, working with the mind in various ways. The, the main modality that I use besides just inquiry, very compassionate inquiry, is, um, hypnotherapy. I'm a, I'm a board certified hypnotherapist. And, so I found that to be a tremendously effective tool because you, you talk about, you know, you asked about uh, uh, contacting one's personal avatar. When you do that in the context of hypnosis, it is very powerful in a totally positive way. Yeah. Because it's not, just, it's not just a mental construct. It's, it's an actual, you know, experience experiential. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we talk about hypnosis for a second? Because sure. many people their experience or their knowledge of hypnosis is somebody on stage barking like a dog. Right. So what, I know that's not what you're talking about. What do you mean and what is clinical hypnosis? 
Well, actually, I get people to cluck, cluck like a chicken, and then that makes all the difference. <laughs> I've got, uh, I call it the, uh, the, the school of the clucking chicken. Um, yeah. Yeah, God, it's, uh, that's such a pervasive image. It's a shame. Um, hypnosis is, is a natural capacity of the mind for an, for a, uh, an inward, uh, focusing and we all experience hypnosis uh, most every day when we daydream and not just when our mind wanders a little bit to a subject but that kind of daydreaming where we're just we delve into the daydream so much that it's like wow where where a person was talking to us and we say oh did you just say something i'm sorry i, I was my mind wandered for a moment well it wasn't just that the mind wandered, it's that, that we kind of entered into that thought so deeply that that thought became like another reality. And we, uh, or sometimes when we've been, when we're driving and we're so deep in thought that we don't remember making, uh, safely and effectively making the turns to get us to our destination. So the, um, it is a natural phenomenon of mind. And it can be accessed deliberately through um, through relaxing uh, the body and relaxing the conscious mind. There's, um, you know, I use what is uh, called an induction, and the induction is a is like a way in to the subconscious, and the way in is through again through relaxing the conscious mind. The conscious mind doesn't go away. The conscious mind remains conscious. One is always aware of, you know, say, my voice and, and the circumstances, and there's always the choice to go, okay, well, I'm done with this right now. Um, but the conscious mind is, is gently compelled to relax, given the opportunity to relax. And then what emerges is, is the subconscious, which is always present, but it in a sense, it becomes much closer to the surface and more accessible. And so that it's this very delicious state because it's extremely, extremely relaxing. And you're, um, it's like that state that some people, most people have experienced where, where you wake up, especially if you wake up from a nap, and you're not quite fully awake. But you're aware of the light, you're aware of the sounds in the room, but you're still kind of in the dream world. And it's a really delicious, relaxing state where you're, you're touching into the subconscious, but you're still in the conscious world. Again, it's a natural capacity. It's a natural capacity that especially indigenous cultures have valued, you know, very much and, um, have been part of, uh, religious rituals i mean a lot of spiritual rituals are designed to get us into that state to relax the conscious mind to sort of put us into a a uh, a slightly altered state that is still of this world but includes the subconscious world as well and when a person is in that state then you can do all kinds of therapeutic things with it you can call forth a person's um uh, healing archetypes. So if a person, say, is a Christian, then you can, you can invite them to call forth, uh, Christ as a healing figure. And it's going to be a very powerful, positive, and powerful experience 
because the conscious mind is not dominant where it's saying, well, of course that's just in my head and uh, I'm just imagining it, blah, 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 the thing that the conscious mind does. And so you can, one of the things that I do is to is to help a person to investigate whether they have any what I call illness agreements, and it's these ways at where at a subconscious level we could be saying you know I feel I'm I am going to be always, I'm always going to be sick or some people are actually afraid of getting well because they've been sick for so long that that they feel not equal to the world around them because that, that's become a new habit of mind, and they're actually afraid of all the things that they have to do to catch up, so it's better just to be sick. Now, if you ask the person consciously if that was the case, most people will say, oh, absolutely not, but unconsciously, sometimes that's a very strong counter-desire that can really interfere with health. So it's a hypnosis is just a, a, a gentle and safe and effective way of accessing the subconscious to make sure that nothing is standing in the way of healing and then of marshalling the um, tremendous resources of the mind and the spirit towards healing. And you mentioned the uh, placebo response uh, earlier. And that's a uh, a, a vital part of what I do, actually. Um, the it used to be that the placebo response was almost a dirty word in the Absolutely. medical community. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was like this. And now they're looking at it and going, "Hallelujah! Look Why at this amazing." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It is an amazing thing that the mind can do, and yeah. and what do we need to do to to foster that? And and it is. Um, it's been studied enough that there's a you know there's a, a basic list of things where they say okay well well we've we've done this study or we found that people who in this placebo group you know the people who receive the placebo and respond to the medication or the respond to the treatment in a similar way as the people actually receiving the uh, the medication um, there are certain characteristics certain mental characteristics that those people had. And so you can set up those same kinds of situations in a um, uh, in a in a healing relationship, and uh, it's like okay, well, the mind has this amazing capacity to heal. That's the essence of the placebo response. Let's set up the situation. Let's stack the situation as much as possible to favor uh, the mind actually doing that. So, um, again, you know, one of the things I do is to help a person go in and to make sure that there's nothing uh, um, internally, conceptually, that's standing in the way of healing. If they have a fear of health, if they or they, if they have a belief that they're actually that they deserve to be sick, et cetera, et cetera, those things are are gently unearthed and are and are resolved, and then that creates more internal conditions that are favorable for response. The other thing about hypnosis is that it puts your nervous system in such a deeply relaxed state that when you're in that very deeply relaxed state, which is similar to a very deep state of meditation, the body automatically starts to heal. 
the body knows what to do to heal. Yeah. And it starts to go about in releasing those those compounds and and um, you know, et cetera, in in the nervous system and throughout the body. It's just this miraculous thing that the body does. Yes. And that's why relax. That's why stress is so toxic to healing, and that's why relaxation is so exactly. is so vital. I have, I have two quick stories to share here, and one of the first ones is early on in my acupuncture practice. I used to ask people if they were experiencing stress, and hmm. inevitably they'd say no. And then as the intake uh, progressed. I'd hear stories like, yes, my youngest son just got arrested and my 14-year-old daughter is pregnant and my parents are elderly and they're moving into my home because they need more care. And then I'll say, but but I thought you said you weren't under stress. And they say, oh, uh, but I'm, I'm handling it. I think I'm handling it very well, right? And that reminds me also my... Uh, we talked a little bit earlier uh, offline that um, we exchanged emails. My mother-in-law is dying right now, mm-hmm. and my, you know, my wife is having fits of crying, and as is her dad and the rest of the family. And I would tear up every once in a while, but you know, people ask me, "How are you doing?" And my kind of own assessment of myself is, "I'm okay." And at the same time, earlier this week, I was noticing that a sore throat that I was fighting off last week was coming back and Mm. all these other mild symptoms. So where I don't have this experience where, oh, I'm stressed, my body is obviously under stress. Mm -hmm. And so I'm making sure I'm, I'm taking care of myself. So it's, it's, the stress is, is a funny thing and it's not just, you know, it's not just the experience of, oh, my hair is on fire, that type of stress. It can be subtle. It can be behind the scenes. It can be even unexperienced. But the body knows. And and like you say, you're either, you're either healing or you're falling ill. There's kind of no holding ground. Yes. Yeah, great point. Great point. Well, and part of the, um, part of the work that I do with people, too, is, um, you know, when I say, okay, here's this, here's this illness, here's this health challenge, let's look at it as a journey and let's make use of it. It's really, um, inviting a, uh, a very compassionate and very thorough look at one's life. And, um, because oftentimes when we, I mean, certainly for me, you know, and, and this has been the case of, uh, with, with clients and with friends as well, that, that, um, you know, when I, when I look back at my own life or, and around that time of 2006, uh, where the hammer of Lyme disease really fell, there were, um, stresses in my life, but there were, there were ways that I was treating my body that were not, that were not really kind, and um, <laughs> you know, basically, That's such a the, nice way of putting it. <laughs> well, the body for me was always this. I mean, I always took basic good care of my body. You know, I mean, I didn't have any any real negative vices. I didn't. Um, I ate, you know, pretty well. Uh, I was pretty well exercised. 
that sort of thing. But the but the mental attitude that I had about my body was that it was the servant to carry me through the world. Yes for these larger goals that I had. And uh, so I was a, uh, a documentary filmmaker for most of my professional life. And uh, the, the shoots uh, could be, you know, 20, 22-hour days. Right. And, well, it's all mental. Uh, if you just have the right attitude, you can power through anything. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's, that's the way that I related to my body, you yeah. know. And so, you know, it was always like, okay, well, you, I'm sorry, you just have to deal with this. You have to deal with it. And in the back of my mind, there was a conflict that was going on uh, that, that started to get stronger the older that I got with, with this way of life. I was going, oh, I'm, not sh- I'm not so sure this, is, this isn't feeling so good anymore. But it was difficult for me to accept that. So when the, when the hammer fell with Lyme disease, it really compelled me to look at my life and to actually metaphorically sit at the table with the tender vessel of my body and to say, I love you. What do you need? What can I do for you? And to really listen. And my body was saying, I I need more consistent rest. You know, I'm, you know, not 10 hours of sleep, but eight hours of sleep. How about that? You know, I'd never let my body get eight hours of sleep. It was always six and a half or less because I considered sleep kind of a waste of time. And I felt that I could do with less sleep because there were so many other things I was more interested in doing. So it was the first time of, of really listening to the tender vessel of my body and saying, what do you need? And... Uh, and of adjusting my life accordingly. And that's when I started. I also um, became a Reiki master, and I'd already st- studied level one and two Reiki, and I became a Reiki master, which also, by the way, uh, took my healing, my physical healing, to a whole other level. Uh, and I started moving out of this lifestyle of... of uh, being a globetrotter and, and uh, you know, these very rigorous uh, documentary film shoots and started really ask you know, saying, okay, well, my body is needing this other way of life. How do I provide it with that way of life? How do... And, and my soul, this other, you know, this larger dimension within me was also saying, thank God, you're finally slowing down. You're actually listening at this deeper level. Um, and the soul was like, well, I have some things to say, too. Can, can you ask me the same question? So it was this, uh, there again, you know, illness can be this very rich opportunity uh, to, you know, to gently, compassionately question everything in our life and to say, okay, what needs to change? What is really being called for? And oftentimes the, the illness is... is kind of this emergency distress signal that is saying you know I really need to change my job or, or I need to change the nature of this toxic relationship that I'm in or I need to I, I need to deal with this this certain attitude that I've had about life a lot of it's internal and um, as well as external and so when it when the illness is seen as this opportunity then it can be a very rich source of of wisdom and growth. So that one, as 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 one is regaining their health, 
they, like these other people that that uh, I have mentioned, people who had had cancer or heart disease or or whatever, then one can say, my God, Lyme disease, one of the best things that ever happened to me. I don't want to wish it on anybody else, but one of the best things that ever happened to me because of all that I have learned, because of all that I have gained as a person and as a soul. So that's part of the recontextualizing of the illness, so that it's no longer a curse. It's actually an opportunity. Yes. Now, if people would like an opportunity to work with you, and take the next step on their journey. How do they find out more about you? How do they contact you? I have a website. Uh, well, my business is called Inner Alliance Consulting, and it's I N N E R A L L I A N C E Consulting, and my website is innerallianceNet. So innerallianceNet, and I have a lot of information on the website about. I call my consulting practice mind-body wellness consulting, and uh, because it really does deal with mind-body, mind-body spirit, um, and the people that I've that I've worked with who have progressed the most also acknowledge the spiritual dimension of their life. Uh, because that's often what is trying to get through in the form of illness. You know, that love, that deeper level of soul that is trying to get through. Uh, that's really uh, trying to get our attention. Um, and um, so, yeah, a lot of lot of information on the website there about this notion of the hero's journey of healing and and of. Um, what that means, and there's a section on my my story, kind of using myself as an example of, of how I learned those same lessons in my own life and the difference that they have made. And um, yeah. So one last question before we go: If I were to look up in the archives of National Geographic, what? What's yours? <laughs> Where can we see your work? What's what's your favorite documentary? Well, the, well, the uh, the answer to the first question is that um, all the films that I did were for. I was on staff with National Geographic Explorer. I was actually the the first uh, uh, producer that they hired for the Explorer series. So cool. Um, back when we were all kind of a bunch of kids in our 20s uh, creating that that uh, series. When um, I when I was a young boy we lived in DC and one of our uh-huh. weekly things was to go to the headquarters and watch the movies in the little movie theater. Oh uh, yes. Yeah, yeah Explorers Hall. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, I interrupted. 14th and 14th and M Street. That's right. Yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, so uh so the most of the films for the Explorer series were not put on uh, video. Um, I mean, one would have to go to call national. It's called National Geographic Creative now. Is the is the section of National Geographic that that deals with films, and you'd have to say, "Hey, there's this guy named Kevin Peer, and he did a whole bunch of films for you guys." Um, and they would have the list of the films, and then you could actually order uh, copies of them um, on DVD. And I did 11 films for Geographic on topics ranging from Zen archery to 
the Wadabe tribe of Niger, West Africa, to the nuclear testing program in the Bikini Atoll during the 40s and 50s. Um, so real wide range. My favorite, I would say overall my, my favorite is probably a film that I did called Way of the Wadabe, and it was about this wonderful uh, tribe called the Wadabe who were still um, and still are, you know, very intact. Um, very much still in love with and following their way of life, uh, and it was uh, it was a very rich experience to to be among them. And uh, <laughs> you know, part when I was getting ready to leave, and they were begging me not to leave because I had just <laughs> described uh, I had just described in a very uh, unexaggerated way um, my life back in Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, when I described that way of life to them, I was single, lived in an apartment. Um, I, uh, I didn't have to drive through traffic because I was within walking distance or bicycling distance from National Geographic headquarters, but still I described the phenomenon of traffic. And, and, and those were seen as horrors to them. It, it was... <laughs> And it was seen as as this terrible way to live that that was not connected with anything much of value, and they were right. You know, I mean, we're more and more we're seeing we're talking about the epidemic of loneliness in yeah. our culture. Yeah. You know, and mm -hmm. and of disconnection and everything. And my. My friend Bongo, when I was having this this conversation with him and describing my life, or in response to questions that he was asking, you know, how many cattle do you have? Well, right, I don't have right, cattle. Right, right. Where do you, you know what is your sudu? What is your house like? Yeah. You know, how many children do you have? And everything. And when I when I was when I was describing this to him and saying, no, I live by myself, and I live in this thing called an apartment building, and and his eyes were gradually growing wider and wider, and then they filled with tears. Mm. And he grabbed my arm, and he said, this gets me emotional, he said, Ngari Maundi, which is the name that they gave me, he said, Ngari Maundi, don't go back to this terrible life. It isn't even a life. Yeah. Come to your senses, <laughs> stay here, be with us, marry a good Wadabe woman, have children, we'll help you get some cattle, have a life. And so uh, that was an extraordinary experience for me. And, and, and it did, you know, his imploring is what I started to take seriously when I got Lyme disease. Lyme disease became this point to where more and more I was thinking of Bongo and saying, how am I going to finally work towards living a real, balanced, and integrated life that is kind to my body rather than hostile to my body? So, There's nothing left to say. Mm. Mm. Kevin, thank you very much. You're welcome, McKay. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, it's been incredible. I really enjoyed this 
interview with Kevin. I got a lot out of it. But one of the things that particularly stuck out to me was when he was talking about how in healing stories and healing narratives, doctors are always the main character and how it can be difficult to recenter that narrative with you, the patient even, as the hero rather than your doctor. You know, that's such a great point in reflecting back on the many, many interviews we've done with Lyme ninjas. And a Lyme ninja, in my mind, is just somebody who is there on their Lyme journey and facing their challenges with courage, not necessarily even winning every one of their challenges, but not giving up and having a ninja spirit and keeping moving forward. So in our interview with the ninjas, there's always this point where they take control of the narrative. They put themselves in the hero's role and take control from the doctor or their naturopath or their acupuncturist, whoever. And then their healing partners become healing partners rather than somebody that they're submitting themselves to. So I think what Kevin's giving us here is really powerful way of reframing the healing journey. And it is a journey with Lyme disease. It is not an event. You don't go in and get surgery and then come out the other end fixed. It's much more like a very, very long rehab. And also, this, Aurora, do you remember Lori Dennis? Yes, Lyme Madness. Exactly, the author of Lyme Madness. And she spoke about how we treat each other more humanely on Facebook uh, than than the doctors treat many Lyme patients inside their offices. So that's another reason to really be the hero of your journey. Because if the doctor's the hero and they treat you poorly, it's like, oh, no, the hero's totally failed and the hero's really evil and we don't believe in heroes anymore. But if you're the hero of the journey and you have this horrible experience, then it's more like the hero you know, comes across an evil rat in the forest <laughs> from Princess Bride. A rodent to R-O-U-S. That's right, a rodent of unusual size, exactly. And has to do battle with it, and then you defeat it. We're showing our nerdum there, Aurora. <laughs> uh, so, and then it just becomes something to overcome, and also something that can be can be stories told about it, rather than this existential crisis of the the heroes not uh, standing up for for the role of the hero, not acting like a hero. That's what I'm trying to say, and stuttering there doing it. So, I think that's a really really important thing. Mm-hmm. And well, speaking of Facebook, that I had found this comment from our last episode with Dr. Sally um, from Nilu, who says, uh, I can relate to Dr. Sally's story because antibiotics helped me to a point, but then it was like I hit a ceiling and there are still so many other terrible symptoms I need to heal from, but I'm not sure what should be the next step for me. That's so interesting because... On one hand, it'd be great to, okay, as an acupuncturist and a healer, it's like, oh, wait, do this, this, and this. But really, A, we can't do that on the radio or on the podcast because it's not, yeah, we're not, we don't have a healing relationship. And if we start giving out medical advice here, we'll get shut down and maybe sued. So we can't do that exactly. But if you reframe that from the hero's journey, it's like she's at the point of the journey where she's maybe halfway through, maybe a third way through, and she's kind of lost. And the guide needs to appear. So this is like Luke Skywalker finding Yoda, and Yoda guides him through his transition. So Nilu needs to find uh, a guide to to get her. The hero needs some help there. So that's really kind of there. And there are lots of different modalities. You can get into 
uh, herbal type antibiotics and herbal medicine. You can do essential oils. You can do laser therapies. You can do uh, electromagnetic and earthing. Right? Yeah, exactly. You can do what am I trying to think of? Uh, ketones and and uh, hyperbaric oxygen together. You can do some dietary protocols to help you recover your mitochondria, so forth and so on. So there's so many different things. The important thing there is to find that guide that you have this connection with that can help you through the next phase of the journey. You know, maybe this guide gets you all the way home or maybe just part way, but that's kind of the next step in the journey for her for sure. So thank you, Neela, for writing in on Facebook and Aurora. And if you like Lime Ninja Radio and have a question or comment, just go ahead and click on over to our website and say hello. And that's LimeNinjaRadio.com. Or you, if you're on Facebook and you find our post there, please leave a comment there. We do our best to respond to all of them. But sometimes the way Facebook fragments things is, you, you know, somebody shares our episode and leave a comment on it and we never get to see it. So the best way is to come over to the website and leave a comment or question there. And that's LimeNinjaRadio.com. Okay. Lastly, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know Ninja Headquarters does not have doors because ninjas only come in through the windows? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.